And so what I feel like we're doing is creating thousands and thousands and hopefully millions of positive male role models so that guys like you and I five years ago would be like, oh, I know five guys who go to men's work, who go to therapy, who are yeah. in good shape, who have a purpose, who are really great boyfriends and great husbands and great fathers. And, and they're open to talking about what it's like to be a man. And I think that's really, that's what I have optimism about is just the topic. Like, oh, yeah. this topic now exists. Being a man is a whole topic and we need to be talking about it. So I'm an optimist. That was the man, the myth, the legend, Traver Bowen. He helps men and women to understand men. And he has helped me so much in trying to understand who I am as a man. He has completely opened my mind when it comes to what I think about men, what I think about myself as a man, and what it is that have shaped me into the man I am today. So if you're a man, or if you have a man in your life, maybe a boyfriend, a husband, a son, a father, this conversation is for you. You're listening to My True North, and my name is Kalle Flodin. This is the podcast where I sit down with a fascinating individual who has been brave enough to go after what they truly want in life. You know that voice that you can hear inside of yourself sometimes? Today's guest has truly listened to that voice and took him on quite a journey. Welcome to the podcast, Trevor Bowen. Thank you for having me, brother. It's been a long time coming. What an interesting journey you and I have had together with podcasts, huh? Yeah, we really do have. We This is our second conversation we ever had. How are you? Quite well, man. I'm. I'm. It's spring here in Colorado, so there's animals everywhere. There's the the weather's fine. It's finally stopped snowing. Uh, I just finished a huge workshop that I'd spent months planning last weekend, which was awesome. And so I feel in that really good. You know, like at the end of a big event, there's the day of relief, and then a little bit of a carryover of the high before reality kind of crashes back down, and it's like, yeah. okay back to crunching numbers, back to back to creating the next idea. So I'm in a really good space right now. Cool. For people listening that maybe have never heard your name before, do you mind introduce yourself? Sure, sure, sure. My name is Trevor Bohm. Uh, I am the founder of a movement called the Uncivilized Movement and the founder of a men's group called the Uncivilized Nation. Uh, I'm an author. I've written two books so far and have a couple more that I want to write. And you know, it, at my core, Kale, I'm a teacher. Uh, I want to share complex, take complex ideas and look at things from 50 different angles and then dissect them down into digestible chunks for people. And for the past couple of years, I've worked in the arena of working with men and changing the culture that men exist in and what's available to men and what's okay for men. And really, if you, if you get down to the core of it, like I want to change the culture that men live in, because when we change the culture of men, we change the entire planet. We change the culture that women exist in. We change the culture that children exist in. We change what we do to the planet. We, we change everything. Uh, and it's just, that's my obsession right now. Yeah, you've really opened my eyes to what a man actually can and would mean if you really dig into it. Mm. But what would you say is an uncivilized man, since that is your name of your brand, so to speak? Yeah, you know, when I was first going on this exploration myself, right? Like <clears throat> I went through your classic midlife 
divorce, job loss. You know, my ex-wife had been pregnant and she lost the pregnancy. Like my whole life got cleared in a, in a week or so, which left time for a lot of introspection. And so I started going down the wormhole of who am I as a man? And it felt like what was available to me at the time were two very different paradigms that I broke into the 1950s Marlboro man, the like for anybody not American, like the cowboy, the isolated, the like, I don't have any emotions, the stoic, right? Like that, that type of man. And then on the other side was it felt like the swing of the pendulum that had gone too far was this sensitive new age, you know, I know this is kind of mean, but I'll say it anyway, like a vegan feminist poet, like man. And I didn't really relate to either of them. You know, I had a background of professional fighting and bodyguarding and CrossFit and the very, very male stuff. But I also had gone to acupuncture school and studied Chinese medicine and was a meditator, lived in an ashram. So really, I wanted to create a third option, which was the combination of the two which was the primal, that which like is in the DNA of all men. And it's okay, the permission to give men to say, hey, it's all right if you want to go fuck some shit up in the world. If you want to fight, if you want to have desire, if you want to build things, if you want to cut down trees, if you want to do like classic male stuff. And yet what was so missing in so many men was this ability to feel and interpret and be okay with emotion, emotion and consciousness together of responsibility, of emotional intelligence, of reverence for the feminine, of reverence for nature. So the uncivilized man to me has those two elements together. He's got access, I say, to his head, to his heart, and to his balls. He understands the primal. He understands when it's time to be primal, but he also has a connection to something deeper than himself, which is consciousness, or as I call the divine. Yeah, that's beautiful, because I think it's really important to just look at the world sometimes and realize that there are not only two options or five, there can be a sixth or a seven or eight and just try to dig deeper in that mm -hmm. sense. But I remember you talked a lot about this on your podcast and even in your book as well about killing the nice guy. Uh, do you mind talking about, about that mm -hmm. a bit about that? I think that's super interesting because you and I are both coming from that same background, trying to please and to be overly nice in some sense. Yeah. So if I want to just get people to understand that the nice guy in this conversation is a term. So it's like a capital N and a capital G. I'm not saying like, don't be a good person or don't be a no. nice person. But <laughs> yeah, like, good to clarify. I came from a background where if you upset a woman, if you upset the feminine, if you stand up for yourself, if you as a man have your own needs or desires, or if you want to do something extraordinary, that's not okay. You can't ruffle any feathers. You can't make people angry. You, you can't have direct conversations. You can't lead. You can't be a force in the world. So I was very, you know, even though I did very male things and very aggressive things, um, I was still under that paradigm that said, I have to make everybody happy in order for me to be okay in the world. If I've upset anybody, that's my fault and I should feel awful about it and apologize a thousand times and, and it's, everything's my fault. And I should have these covert kind of secret ways of living in the world, Kale. Like we'll, we'll tell you, I don't have any needs, but then I'll go like get them met secretly and, and not in, in integrity. I won't have integrity. My thoughts, words, and actions won't line up. 
And really, we don't like to use the term because it's kind of medical, but it's very codependent, right? It's like, I'm okay if everybody else is okay. Yeah, exactly. And that was how I existed for a lot of my life. And my, my ex-wife, my business partner, my, it was like, I would never say I'm okay just because I'm okay. Like I need to do the work to be okay by myself, to be okay alone in a room, okay with who I am. And so when I tell guys, you know, and I have a whole course on killing the nice guy, it's about really owning your power, owning who you are, why you're here, and then being unapologetic about how you want to serve the world. And I use that term very specifically, how you want to serve the world, right? We need more men who understand that you're here to do something. And it's okay if you want to do something great. It's okay if you want to step outside the box. And guess what, brother? You're going to upset some people. Yeah, that's fine. I'm sure when you left your old job and went out to live and and do this extraordinary thing that you're doing, that you pissed some people off. Right. So people are like, yeah, who, who do you do. think you are, Kale? Right. Like, who the hell do you think you are to leave our safe little culture and society and go, what? What are you going to do? Make YouTube videos? Who are you? <laughs> yeah. Just go into my comment section and then, then you will see the, the question marks. <laughs> oh, the comment section. Yeah. That's yeah, a lovely, but it's, a lovely a, place. it's like, if, if you are a nice guy, like in quotes, right? Like a, a capital N, capital G. Yeah you would constantly change your message in order to be okay with the comment section. Yeah, exactly. Like someone in the comment section is like, hey, I don't like your hat. Like, okay, next time you don't wear a hat. Someone go like, hey, I, I think you should wear a blue hat. You're wearing a blue hat. And your message gets diluted and no one gets helped. So that's, that's the nice guy. Did you have like a day when you had this like epiphany or a wake-up call when you realized that you were a nice guy or did you come during a long time? I read the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy by Robert Glover. And I've since had the opportunity to interview him a couple of times. He's a, he's a really interesting guy. And the very first chapter of the book, Kale, there's a, like a 12 point check mark, like a, a checklist mm-hmm. of being a nice guy. And I hit every single one of them. <laughs> and I was so angry <laughs> at him, right? At the author. Yeah, I was like, course. how do you know me so well? And so that was really what started that whole journey. But yeah, that book was amazing. I think we've grown up, at least I have, kind of in a female perspective sometimes and Mm -hmm. had a lack of male role role models. I have my dad, of course, but besides that, I didn't have that many male role models. And that is why I think it's so fucking important what you're doing, that we're gathering together as men and trying to talk about it on our level, because I can't talk about the stuff I feel as a man to my Christina, my Sambu and the one right. I'm living with. Right. Like She can't understand on the level I can or my male friends can. Why do you think it's so important to have those circles of men compared to mixing it with women? Like actually uh, actively excluding women to just do it for men. Why is that so important? Oh, Kai, it's the most important. And, and I don't know how else to say it other than this that men are different. Our nervous systems are different. Our habits are different. Testosterone makes us different. We're just different. And we have this collective experience that we all go through that requires us to be around other men in order to be understood 
And here's the second thing, in order to be taught, like it used to be that was the way, right? We would get 13 or 12 or whatever it was, we'd get plucked out of the women's huts. We'd be taken out into the woods. We'd have some extraordinary initiation all done by men, right? We'd have our name changed. We'd be told, this is what it means to be a man. This is the responsibilities that, that you now have, you know, like welcome to the brotherhood. You are now a man. And then we'd come back to the village and we'd live separately. We'd live among the men. And we don't do that anymore. As a matter of fact, many like my dad was such a hard worker, but he wasn't home a lot. So I was raised by my mom and my two older sisters. And so I just didn't get, I'm going to use this word again, very, very specifically. I didn't get the nourishment that I get from other men. And so now when I put men in a circle, I just did this a week ago. What's so common for them to say is, I can talk about all the things here that I can't talk about elsewhere. I can share the things here that I can't share elsewhere. And there's something about, I'm just going to use the male nervous system. When we get around other men and we're not competing, when we're actually sharing and being vulnerable and talking truth, something about our nervous system relaxes and we're able to release things that we're holding on to. And we're able to take in things that we need to take in. So I know I'm biased because this is my business, but before it was my business, I was the recipient of that nourishment, right? The very first time I went to a men's group, I had gotten served divorce papers the night before. Oh, so wow. I'm, I'm a mess, right? I'm an absolute mess. I'm a disaster. I'm like, my heart is broken. And yet I walked out of that group five days later, because we did a five-day workshop, and I had two very distinct feelings. One, my heart is still broken. Like that didn't go away. It didn't magically like, yay, I'm getting divorced. I'm so happy. <laughs> but, but yet there was another part of me, Callie, that was full. For the first time ever, I felt like I'm okay in the world. I'm going to be okay in the world. I have brotherhood now. I have people looking out for me. So I want to give that experience to all men because I think when we don't have it, we do bad things in the world. Right? Yeah, we're we almost too powerful for our own without us knowing it. And we, exactly. if we can't control it, like you usually say, we will fuck shit up. And I have, and you have, and other men have as well. Uh, I remember watching the, the documentary on Netflix years ago that is called The Work. It is civilized people, uh, like quote unquote normal people, Yeah. that gets invited into a prison and then they have like men's groups and circles and just sit and talk and it was so fascinating to me to realize that the guys in prison that have murdered people or robbed people had the exact same issues as a man as the people working nine to five jobs or the exact mm. the same the only thing that made them different was the crime and that was it right, right? and so we as a we as men have gotten disconnected from the brotherhood of other men We've just gotten unplugged from it. We've gotten removed from it. And now we're seeing the effects of that removal. And we're seeing even more now that COVID exists, right? We saw last year how many men now are, are even more men are addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs, are isolated. How much porn use went through the roof during COVID? How much alcohol got consumed? How much domestic violence went through the roof? All of these things, when men get taken away from the company, and I'm going to use this word again, of initiated brothers, 
what happens to them. And I'm a living testament. And so are the hundreds of guys and thousands of guys in my movement who, wow, I put you in a group of men and suddenly you don't feel the need to drink as much. You don't feel the need to yell at your, at your spouse. You're not as angry. You're not as violent. And you just have this sense of like, I'm okay in the world, right? Where it's almost like we as a, as a group feel kind of like we're animals backed into a corner. And when that happens, you know what happens. They lash out, right? They attack. And it's, it's counterintuitive to the culture because the culture is like, well, wait a minute. What about the patriarchy? Wait a minute. You guys are in charge. You guys are doing all the bad shit. How come you feel trapped? Because we don't have a place to freely express ourselves as men. And we don't have the permission. Here's the biggie. The permission to feel our feelings. Right? It's okay for men to feel angry and horny. Like That's totally cool. Like If you, oh, of course. Like bros, we're just hanging out and we're fucking angry. Like, oh, good for you, man. You punched the hole in that wall. Look at you. Good for you. <laughs> but if I was like, uh, I think I'm going to cry right now. I feel really sad. A, a lot of guys would be like, whoa, slow down there. Yeah, you don't need exactly. you to be a wuss. You, don't need you, to, <laughs> you, know, you can go cry somewhere else there. So it's, it's about giving ourselves permission to be human. Yeah, right? and permission totally. to, to have the full range of the human experience. Yeah, I think it's very important as well. What I've learned when I moved to the cabin to spend time alone with your thoughts. And that's fucking scary to do because so much shit come up that you have never mm -hmm. thought about before. I know you've spent mm -hmm. 28 days in complete darkness. Do you want to share something about that and what th that experience was for you? Yeah, that was a wild one. So I was doing this whole year long project called the year to live project. And I was living an entire year as if it were my last year alive. And I had left a men's group a couple months before. And one of the guys there said, it seems like your year is, is a theme around death. If you really want to understand what death is without dying, go do this thing called the dark retreat. And I was like, what the hell is a dark retreat? Says, well, <laughs> this is what it is. You're going to be alone in a pitch black room for a series of time and you'll have to figure yourself out in that room. And so I chose a month because I figured I could white knuckle and kind of get through anything less, but I needed it to be impactful. And so I flew to Guatemala and found an ashram that had a dark room and literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a month, I was alone in a room where I couldn't see. And it was an extraordinary exercise in leadership, in being with myself, and in surrender, Kali, because I had no control over what came into my head. And if it was like, okay, here's a video of, you know, you like a mental movie of you driving home from the hospital after your wife had a miscarriage. Okay, this is going to play every 15 seconds for the next two days. And there's yeah. nothing You've you can do about it. Exactly. There's you no, can't escape it. You can't escape. There was no distraction. So it was really in a, it was an awful experience. Like I cried and cried and went crazy and tried to like punch holes in the wall and was screaming and, and also found some peace in there because I found who I was. I, I owned the fact that darkness is a thing and my brain isn't always my best friend. And I can't just say like, oh, love and light. Everything's amazing every day. I'm so spiritual. Look at me. 
it was this there was this beautiful combination of of darkness and light and really my initiation into a deeper understanding i know if you want we can go deep on this man yeah <laughs> different understanding of death yeah right like i had come from volunteering in hospice that was what i did prior to that room so i was around a lot of death and people who were dying and yet i remember this one day Kali, waking up it was maybe like day 24 25 and I couldn't tell whether I was alive or dead or not. Oh, wow. now for people to hear this, they're like, wow, that's, that's really weird. But yeah, like imagine being in for three and a half weeks alone in a pitch black room, not sleeping, having trauma, like cry, all the things you may go a little bit nuts. So I remember like touching my face and trying to think like, is this just a dream? Did they let me out? And I died and I came back in. And so I was, I was just all kind of fucked up. Let's just say that. But what was so beautiful about it was realizing this is actually going to happen. Like I'm 40 years old. In the next 40 years, 50 years, I'm going to be alone in a pitch black box in the earth. Yeah. And guess what? Everything's going to still be going on around me. Like people will be arguing on YouTube. People will be getting (laughs) married. People will be having babies. Like I will slowly be forgotten. So one, good realize that I, as soon as I get out of here, I'm allowed to swing for the fences. I'm allowed to try to hit home runs. I'm allowed to write books. I hadn't written anything at that point. Like I'm allowed to have a a big public message because if people hate it, if people are like, you are the worst author on the history of books, (laughs) I'll still be dead 40 years from now. Or if I'm a New York Times bestseller, I'm still going to be dead 40 years from now. So it was this beautiful idea of having a clean slate. And it was also this beautiful understanding of the reverence of life of like, holy shit, I still may get 40 years to go out there and fall in love again and have a family and, and, you know, walk just simple pleasures, eat food, make love, watch sunsets, surf waves, all of it. So that chunk of it was so impactful, right? Like yeah, it's it almost really like actively sh- choosing a like a near death experience. A hundred percent, yeah, a hundred percent. And what was so unique is when I left, I actually went back to hospice and was volunteering again in there, but with a completely different perspective. You know, when I was in there the first time, I, I had no training in it, so I was kind of in shock a lot. Right. It was like, oh my God, these people are dying. This is kind of overwhelming. I can take some deep breaths and try to be there for them. But when I went back the second time, I felt like I was more mature and would say things like, Hey, it's okay. You know, this next this next adventure you're gonna take is gonna be a beautiful one. So it's okay that you're gonna die. As opposed to, you know, it was just a weird maturation or a weird um yeah, it was like I was initiated. Again, I keep using that word, but like the dark room was an initiation into a deeper understanding of life and death. Do you think it would be, do you think it would have been a very different experience if you did that with another person in that dark room? 100%. It was so like the amount of personal strength I had to draw upon in order to get through the darkest times. You know, the on, I think it was day eight 
that I had been like pretty normal. I was just like, oh, this is kind of boring, you know? <laughs> um, and then I dreamt of walking on the beach, holding hands with the child that my ex-wife had miscarried. And that mm. fucked me up so bad that I didn't know what to do. I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I think if I had someone in there, it would have not allowed me to hold myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, like I had to learn how to take care of myself in my darkest moments. And so I also think it would have just been a distraction. You know, like what's this person doing? What are they like? It's very, very private. It's very, very intimate. You know, on the last day when they came and, and told me I could come out, they opened the door and I opened my side of the door and I stayed in the middle of the room for another three hours. Mm, I couldn't okay. leave. I didn't want to leave. It was like, this is my home. This is, I've done so much here. I've experienced so much here. I don't want to leave. So I just got chills, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. I totally get so that. I think having, yeah, I think having someone else in there would have skewed it or changed it. Yeah. But I think it's like we just talked about it, that it's so important to fear, like face those fears that is going to come up if you if you allow them to pop up. But if you have another person there, they won't pop up in the same way, at least. I feel that when I'm in here in the cabin, I know it's yeah. a dark room for 20, 28 days, but it's some, some form of um, isolation. Because I remember mm -hmm. when I first moved here and I bought the cabin, I was, you know, completely alone. No girlfriend, no dog, no nothing. It was just me. Yeah. And I remember I was sitting here on my birthday, completely alone. And I, four months earlier, gotten dumped by this girl that I really, really loved. And I was just, mm. you know, sobbing. And people, mm. when I t tell this story afterwards, like, oh my God, what did you do that to yourself? And I was like, that was the best thing I've ever done. Because I had to, like yeah. you just said, I had to face that in some sense. Yeah, it was super yeah. fucking uncomfortable going through it, like sitting here yeah. and I felt very depressed and very small. But afterward, yeah. it was almost like you said, stepping out of that room and then like, I created a lot of shit in here. Like I made yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's what you did was that you actually you didn't abandon yourself. I think that's so common in the culture that like, oh, I'm feeling this thing that's uncomfortable. Let me run away. Let me hide. Yeah. Let me let me distract myself. Let me do whatever. And just to sit there and say, okay, I'm sad right now. I just got dumped. I'm alone. This isn't when I was 10, I didn't think like, okay, cool. I'll be spending this birthday alone <laughs> in a cabin crying. No. Uh, and yet that is the reality of so many of our lives, is the is the the difference between what we fantasized and what reality actually came. And so I think you did yourself a huge service. And a huge honor, if you think about it, to witness yourself go through pain. And I'll say as a man, it's even more courageous because it's just not our nature. Our nature is to go do something, right? So you, you weren't like, okay, I feel the sadness. Uh, I'm going to go for a 10K run or yeah. uh, I'm going to go cut down a tree or I'm yeah. going to go jerk off five times. I'm going to go do something to make myself not feel this. So good for you, man. I, I'd say that's an initiation too. Yeah, it is in some sense. But going back to the book you wrote, uh, I actually read it. Mm -hmm. Not, I didn't read it. I did listen to it this weekend. Um, okay. It was really Beautiful. fucking good. Uh, it was like, a, we Thank call you. it a punch in the gut in Swedish. I don't know if that's a term in <laughs> yeah. English as well. Uh, yeah. in, a, in a good sense. 
And you read it, Good. not read it, you uh, spoke it. How do you say it? You re- recorded the audiobook yourself? Or recorded it. How was yeah. that experience? That must have been a shitload of work. Like as soon as COVID hit, Kale, I was like, I'm not wasting this. I'm not going to just let whatever this is just go by. And so I immediately reached out to the studio here in Denver and was like, hey, are you guys recording? And he was like, I don't know what's happening in the world, but like, I'll still come in if you want to record something. Yeah. Uh, so I recorded both books in about a week. And oh, wow. it was, yeah, it was, it was hard, but it was also really beautiful because I'm sure, you know, as a, a content creator, oftentimes I forget what I wrote or I forget what I created. And so it was like a reorientation to me about my own work. And, and just a pleasure because the guy listening to it was, he had no idea what I was going to come in and talk about. <laughs> and so to hear it, to watch him like listen to the stories and see his reaction, uh, he bought a copy of the book. Um, it, was, it was really, really powerful. And, and I love, I wanted the spoken word. I wanted it to be my voice. Uh, but yeah, it was a really beautiful process. And, and since then, it's actually been one of the way, one of the main ways that people get a hold of it. So I'm really glad that I did it. Yeah, cool. It's very convenient. You just go on Audible and then just click it and then you get access yeah. to it. Perfect. Yeah, thank you. But you said you have more books that you want to write in the future. What are those going to be about? Yeah. So the first one, I, you know, I said I did this, this year-long project called the Year to Live Project. And it was truly a magical year of my life, despite it, the initiation of it being so much loss and so much pain. But yet I think that's an integral part of so many people's journeys is if you look back to when was that major change, it came out of loss, it came out of pain, it came out of suffering. So I actually blogged and wrote publicly for that entire year of okay. volunteering in hospice, of you know sitting down with an ex-girlfriend and apologizing for what a dick I'd been 10 years before, of, <laughs> of doing the dark room, <laughs> uh, of doing ayahuasca of living in the woods in a survival school of like taking some leadership classes of, of, of meeting people and just listening to their stories. So I want to compile that because we in the West and we can, let's, we dive back into it. We're so afraid of the idea of death and we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it at all. Our, our old people are like shipped off to old folks homes and we never see them and we don't talk to them. And, and yet I think it's super important as a culture to, to bring the idea. I don't think we need to think about it all day long, right? Like I don't wake up in the morning like, yay, one day closer to death, but <laughs> it's, 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 in the, it's in my conversation. So I definitely want to put those stories together. I have so many stories from that year, uh, especially the ones about hospice that I want to share those men and share their lives. I was just thinking about what you said about death. I, what we've actually done is uh, like you said, shipped them off to retirement homes as, as well. But yeah. what we did before was living in tribes, you know, like mm-hmm. back, back, way back when. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you actually saw your uh, quote unquote neighbor uh, or your grandma or live with them until death. And then they passed and then yeah. you came, people came into the tribe. We just lost that because now when people die, we maybe go to a funeral. You know, that's it. We don't even see yeah. them dying. We don't see them being maybe sick even. We get a mail saying that that person died and then you're just gone. And I think it's so, you know, just the idea of, you know, I tell all, all my private clients who have something that they want to do, but they're not doing it. 
I tell them there's one of two reasons or, or both of these reasons are why. One, you've forgotten that at some point you're going to die. You forgot. Because if you really, really realize that, you just go for it. You do whatever the thing is. If you want to be a musician, you'd be a musician. If you want to go live in the woods, you'd be live in the woods. Because you'd realize that at some point, all of this game that you're involved in and the drama and the politics and the TV, that it's all going to go away. And you'd, you'd do that. So it's, that's, that's part one. Or you're actually afraid of death. You're so afraid that if you go live in the woods and write the U- and start the YouTube channel and people reject you, that you're going to be ostracized from society and you're going to have to go live and you're going to die. Like no one will love you. You'll be alone forever. You're going to die. So at the root of so many people's challenge of not living the life they want to live is something around the theme of death. It may be one or it may be the, it may be the other. And I think we don't talk about that either because it's so scary and it's such a big topic. And who wants to tell someone like, oh, you know why you're afraid to start your blog? Because you're afraid of death, right? Yeah, <laughs> they have, exactly. They have a lot to think about, right? So yep. instead we say things like, oh, you're f- afraid of failure. You're afraid of rejection. You're afraid of success. You're afraid of, but what are, what is at the root of all of those things? So yeah, I, I think that story will be super inspiring um, it'll be super, yeah, it'll just be super inspiring because everybody experiences loss, all of us. Yeah. And, and I know I was in a unique position to be able to do that year trip, but it also felt like when I, I for the whole year, I, I wrote publicly about it and the response I got to it, Kale was amazing was people saying, God, I wish I could do this. I wish I could, you know, drop out of school and just be a surfer or drop out of work and go to school. Or I wish I was closer to my parents. I wish, and I, I tell them over and over and over, you can be, there's no rules that are preventing this. You're preventing this. And also it just gave me so much insight into people, right? Like volunteering in hospice was so beautiful because these, these people who I didn't know just shared their, their final moments with me and they were so yeah. honest and so vulnerable. And it was just, God, I, I think everybody on earth should volunteer in hospice for a year. Yeah, they have no would... reason to like hold back. They just in their no. last moment and they just put stuff out there, of course. Wide open, right? Wide open. Yeah, so that's a biggie. I, I've been sitting on that for a number of years. I think the project ended five years ago, and I have all the stories written. It's just a matter of compiling them. Yeah, that's uh, small. It, it little doesn't project. feel like it's quite ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, right? It's like when I when I've sat down to write Man Uncivilized, I was like, okay, the next year of my life, this is what's happening, and everything else will come second. Relationships, my health, like working out everything that I love has to come second to this book. And so I'm not quite ready to like, okay, <laughs> everything's going to go Dig on deep. hold again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's when I want to write. Ah, cool. I remember a quote from Gary V. I think you know about him. I'm guessing one girl yeah. came up to him like with a, like a, with a cell phone, like a selfie mode, like Gary, can you, can you give me some uh, inspiration? He was like, you're going to die. And then he just went off. And she was like, uh, okay. It's like, first you laugh at it because it almost sounds funny, but then you realize 
Right. Yes, he's so fucking right. You're going to die and you can't waste it. And there's so many people that write to me on DMs on Instagram or YouTube comments like, I wish I could do the things you do. I wish I could do that. Mm. Like maybe you mm. can't do it exactly like I've done it and you shouldn't. You should do your version. Sure. But there's so many people living through me or other creators feeling like they're almost having this lifestyle thanks to us. And I think that's a bit dangerous. I don't want to talk my own business down of course but like i think it's sure. a bit dangerous to live through others only if you're not yeah. actually taking that dream and doing something out of it yeah i 100 percent agree it's it's like use a little bit right let us let us give you the permission but then take that permission and run with it at, at the start of every workshop i teach i usually just take a, a note card and i write the word permission on it and i mm. give it to everybody and say, basically, like, here's the deal. We could be done right now. You guys can go home. I know you've paid thousands of dollars and you're here for five <laughs> days, but you can go home right now because all you really need is this. You need permission and you need it. If you need it from me, I'll give it to you. But mostly you need it from yourself to say, okay, I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to go through whatever I have to go through to live this life that I'm lying in bed at night fantasizing about. And, and I don't want to downplay that some people do have limitations, right? Like I'm never going to play in the NBA. I know that at <laughs> You're five years it. old <laughs> at, at my height with my little hands and my basketball <laughs> ability, I'm never going to do it. And maybe I have to come to terms with that, but there's something else that I can do that I, my heart wants more. I think my ego wants me to play in the NBA, Kai, but my heart's yeah. like, I don't give a shit about pro basketball, but it may give a shit about being of service, of, of inspiring someone, of working in the church, of being a teacher, of taking up an instrument, of being a storyteller, of whatever it is that like that heart whisper that really when you get quiet, when you get honest, you're like, oh, this is what I really wish I was doing. Yeah. I think that's so important for people to follow. Right? We've all done big things. We've all like, I, I went to grad school. I fought in a cage. I've done stuff that's like, okay, this is a, a big decision that's going to have ramifications, positive and negative. And yet it's just the willingness to kind of surrender yourself to life and say, okay, I'm going to go live in the woods. It's going to have really great moments. It's going to have really down moments. I'm not going to try to control either one because, but I'm what I'm willing to do is choose and then allow what happens afterwards to happen. And I think that's a big, a big challenge for a lot of people is realizing how much power they have in the choice and then how much lack of power they have in the outcome of the choice. And so it's that duality that we have to walk with that says, I'm going to be okay either way. Yeah. And it's okay failing as well. A thousand percent, a thousand percent and, and reorienting reframing what failure is, right? F failure is oftentimes just a misstep. And you're like, okay, cool. Yeah. I think it's super important. But yet the taking action, Kelly, I'll tell you when I first, before I wrote any of this stuff, or I wrote the first book, and then I, I, I had a consultant who was like, you have to figure out what you do in the world. You can't just be like this general motivational, inspirational person. I was like, okay, I am a divorce coach. I'm going to work with people going through divorces. I'm going to help them get through it. And then I went to this work, I went to this conference and people asked, what do you do? And I was like, I am a divorce coach. 
And then I would get like a little stomach ache. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's weird. And I told someone else, like, I am a divorce coach and I get a little <laughs> stomach ache. And I was like, ah. and then it was, I needed to say that, right. I needed to make the decision and I needed to say that 10 times before the 10th time saying like, okay, I'm not a divorce coach. This doesn't feel good. This was an idea that I needed to say to get to. And then I remember saying, leaving, like, I actually, I work with men and my whole system relaxed. I was mm. like, okay, cool. This cool. is what I do. Having no desire to do it prior. Like, no, it was never in the cards. Yet, if I didn't go through the I'm a divorce coach thing, I don't think I would have gotten to where I am now. So I also just want to tell people like, it's okay to take the step and not, not have that step be right because it fr from that step, you may take the right step, right? I think that's really important too, that everyone thinks it's going to be like, okay, the next thing, like, I just have to figure it out today, all the things that I want to do. But if we go back through both of our histories, I'm sure I have like five different start avenues that didn't go anywhere. No, I would like, say way uh, more than five for my for my point of right, view at least. Right, right. But yet so you many needed projects. to do those, right? Yeah, I wouldn't be here otherwise. To do those. I wouldn't be the boyfriend I am today without failing in my previous relationship either. 100%. Yeah, so I think we get to reframe the idea that, you know, to me, failure is just not learning. Yeah, if you learn something, you, you, didn't, you didn't fail. Exactly. I think failing is a loaded word in a negative term for some reason. I think if a person says, oh, I failed in this and this and this, like, and I'm going to say like, good for you. Like you tried some stuff at least. I'm rather yeah. having people telling me and I would like to surround myself with people that are actually not constantly failing, but they're at least <laughs> trying stuff and failing some of them and succeeding some of them. They're at least doing yeah, something. They have the, the willingness is that word, right? Like they're just willing to try. I love surrounding myself with people who are willing and willing and willing to go for it and try and fail epically. Like, okay, yeah. you're going to land face down if this doesn't work and beautiful. We'll pick you up. We'll dust you off, pat you on the butt and say, okay, get back after it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How was the workshop you just did? Oh, Kelly, it was so good. I was working with two other guys who really are geniuses in their fields and the three of us just played off of each other brilliantly. But what was so impactful to me, it was all men. So we had 25 men in a house, was how many of those men said, this is really the first time I've shared this with a guy. Mm. Or this is really the first time I've shared this period. I've never spoken about this. And so to me, when I hear someone say, hey, what I'm about to say, I've never said before out loud. I know that that person's going to be radically different the next day. Yeah. Because they've gotten rid of this thing that that's that's been they've been carrying for so long. Right? And since it's all men, we have to deal we get to deal with real stuff. Like I won't go into too many of the specifics, but we had a guy there whose wife had died of cancer. He never got to talk about that. He never had mm, like he was okay. still carrying that for years, right? Like that was a real thing that he was carrying. We had uh, guys who were first responders, like firemen and cops talking about, and I know this is super, like very, very, very dark. But, like, what is it like to walk into a house and see a murdered child? 
Mm. Like that wow. stuff these guys were carrying, right? And they, they'd never talked about it because they, they, they're not allowed to. And so that we, we gave them a space to actually share. What is it like to, to live like that? What is it like to go walk into a triple homicide and then five hours later, be at home playing with your kids? Yeah. Like that is a weird, wow. right? Like think about that. It's, it's, that's something you and I, I never have to deal with. Like I, I, someone calls me an asshole on Instagram and I'm like, this is the worst thing that's going to happen to me today. <laughs> exactly. And so one having reverence for those men who are in those positions of firemen, cops, military, and realizing that we do not take care of them. We do not take care of them afterwards. And yet we expect them to come back and just reintegrate into society. Uh, that was really amazing. Um, my friend, Michael Gay, one of the teachers, he took us all out on the land and we were alone just sitting with in nature for, for mm. a period of time and, and teaching the guys to communicate with nature, um, just like being okay in nature. Uh, I did a whole thing where I blindfolded guys. Yeah, I saw some pictures of that. Sit. Yeah, right. Like it's one of my favorite things to do, Kali, is, is take two guys and say one of them is going to be blindfolded. And the other one has to guide him through the woods to a specific point and then back. Mm. And so the first guy has to learn how to lead, right? Like how do you get, and they can't touch each other. So I can't just like put my hand on his shoulder and make him move. So I have to say like, take a step with your left foot. Be careful. There's a tree here. Shuffle to the right. And then for the guy blindfolded, for him to realize, oh, wow, this is scary to be, be led to let someone else be in control of my life. And I do that specifically with guys because so many of them are leaders in their relationships mm, okay. or leaders in the bedroom sexually or leaders in their companies and say like, what was it like for you to be led? And they're like, I didn't like it. It was scary. <laughs> it, was, it was vulnerable. I go <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, this is what all the people you lead, this is how they feel. So do you have a little bit more compassion for them? Do you have a little bit more understanding? Are you going to make sure that you're a better leader now? And a lot of guys who are like, oh man, I don't know how to give clear instruction. I don't have a vision. I don't know what I want to do. Teaching them to actually develop that skill as well. So Kali, I love it. Like at the end of that workshop, I was literally like on cloud nine for, I still am. Like, I can't believe it was so awesome but mostly because I got to witness men communing together, right? And, and I know I want to speak to the women here who are listening too, that all of these guys went home to women. All of these guys have daughters or, or girlfriends or partners. And so it's not just about men doing this work for men, but how do you, like the world is asking men to be better, because we have been not so good in certain situations <laughs> yeah. for a long, long, like since the beginning of time, let's just say, and we're still not good in a lot of situations, but yet this is the kind of work that makes those men whole so that then when they do go home, they are better fathers, they're better husbands, they're better brothers, they're better bosses, they're better employees, they're better sons, they're better everything. So as a, as a, a human, I feel like I did some good in the world too. You know, like it's, it wasn't just about like, yay, we made money and yay, people bought my t-shirts and yay, I sold some books. 
it really was like, okay, a bunch of these communities that they're all in will now also be different. So I loved it. I can't wait. We're doing it again in October. I got to get you oh, over okay, here. Okay, cool. Yeah, I would love to. I was so jealous. I was like, why the fuck am I living all the way over here? I can't join all of those fun stuff. Uh, so October yeah, totally 21st get it. through the 24th, Kai, we'd love to have you. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's fascinating what you said, like, it's not just men, because it's, it must be so inspiring for you to know that, like, yeah, that man is going home to his daughter, and that's going to affect that daughter's life. And that daughter's life is going to have maybe kids one day, and that will affect them. So it's like, it's trinkling down in all of those relationships. Yeah, I hear mostly, I'm sure you get this from being on social media, that 75% of my Instagram following is female, mm, despite yeah, okay. running a men's movement. And so I hear from women every day, hey, my brother read your book, my father read your book, my husband read your book, and now he's working out again. Now he, we're actually sitting down and having intimate conversations. He's sharing things with me that he didn't share before. He's more patient. He's more compassionate. He's more patient with the children. And so I hear from women every day, and it just warms my heart because I want to affect how women exist in the world too, but I'm doing it in a different way. And earlier in my career, I was attacked a lot for that. People are like, why are you only working with men? Why aren't you working with women? They're the ones who need the most support. And it's like, well, let me do my thing. Trust me, like I'm on your team. I'm on your side. I just have a different way of looking at the world than you do. And if what you asked me to do was working, it would work but it's not working. So let me try this different avenue and see what happens. And so it's also a good validation that, yeah, this, is, this, this thing is actually working. Yeah, you're supporting women in that sense by actually helping guys out to support their women. So it's not direct women, 100%. but in some sense they are. 100%. Yeah, thank you. You're teaching a lot of people or guiding a lot of people, I would say, but it's not, if it's not too personal, what are you still working mm -hmm. on yourself? Mm, that's a great question. You know, for years, I just put my work first. And it was a bit of, if I'm being really honest, it is like, I don't have to do the work because I teach the work. Right. And so that was a bypass. And so now yeah. I'm still doing all my own work and I'm in a relationship right now. I'm in a beautiful relationship. And yet, you know this, a relationship is the biggest testing ground for you. Yo, you think you've done some work? Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> let's, get you, let's get you in the house for a couple of weeks with a partner and see yeah. how much work you've done. So really it's about my work is twofold. Still having relationship with the nice guy and making sure that he's not sneaking in there in these insidious ways. And then two, taking care of myself, Kali. I think when I went through my divorce and all of that, I was like, I'll just take care of everybody else. I'll, I'll build this huge company. I'll make sure everybody gets paid. I'll make sure all my Instagram, like I'll, I'll just work and work and make sure everybody's taken care of. And then it was this past year where I felt myself starting to burn out and getting frustrated and I couldn't create well. And I saw some things with my health that weren't good. And I had to go, wow, I need to actually learn how to take care of myself too and make it a yes and as opposed to one or the other. And that's been hard. It's just not, it wasn't in my nature. And so really self-care is a big piece of work. 
and acknowledging that this thing that I've built, this movement is, is real and it's taking off and I don't have to be in that like frenetic startup, you know, 20 hour a day work energy and, and realizing, oh, we've graduated. We have hundreds of men who are involved in this thing and, and thousands of people following it all over the world. I can take a day off. And, and not only I can take a day off, I have to take a day off or else this whole thing is going to fall apart. So that's, that's been a big thing. Um, you know, intimacy, my relationship. Like, okay, shit, this is, this is real. Everything, yeah. you know, I, I love her to death. And that is my biggest training ground. That is how do you lead and be with someone who's independent and strong and has her own ideas and yet not collapse into the nice guy and be like, okay, you're in charge. You run everything. I just <laughs> want to make you happy. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, so that's, that's really my work right now. Cool. Yeah, I think it's a bit of the same for me, actually, because I thought that I had so much work done when I went into this relationship. I was like, I went to therapy, you know, talked to a lot of guys. I've done so much progress. And then it takes four days and then like, like, okay, yeah, I had some stuff left. But it's like, like you just said, it's like the perfect training ground. I, I can't get away from it here. And I think what me and Christine is doing here in the cabin, like, we can't escape this place. Okay, one of us can right. physically take the car, but we have this made sure. like we one and a half room ish, uh, yeah. and we work both from home. We see each other all the time, and that's our biggest struggle. We need like how do we find our own space? Because yeah, if I get annoyed at the weather or annoying um, people online or whatever, she's the only one there to receive it, and that's not fair yep. to her. And she does the same to me. So we need to sure. like we're still struggling with it, right? Find it, trying to find a balance of like, she's not the source of the uh, annoying parts of me right now. Right. Someone else is, yeah. but she's here and have to take it. And that's not fair to her. It feels like we're doing this kind of um, hardcore version of a relationship when we're moving into this small kind of space. We will yeah. love an office one day so we can actually take a day off um, from each other. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't love her. I love her to death, but it's of course. for me of to course. build myself and a better relationship to her. I need to step away sometimes and do uh, yeah. me work. Yeah. I love the idea relationally of sort of three different buckets. There's the you bucket, there's the Christina bucket or Christine bucket. And then there's the relationship bucket. Yeah. And you guys both pour into the relationship bucket and you pour into each other's buckets but you also need to just have external stuff filling your own bucket. Right? Yeah. You need to read books. You need to go to, you need to go see people. You need to have conversations that don't have anything to do with her. You need to go walk in the woods and have experiences that you then get to come home and say, Oh my God, this crazy thing just happened. I think it's super important to remember the idea of sovereignty in relationship that it's necessary, right? Like the, the Hollywood version of relationship is that you just do everything all the time and you're never apart and everything's great. And how dare you want to go out and be alone for a day? That must mean that you don't love her or you don't want to be with her, which is just bullshit. What's yeah. really healthy is actually taking time apart. If you listen to Esther Perel or Michaela Bohm or any of the big relationship experts, they'll say, you actually need to go be apart. You need to 
for your own sanity, your own health, and even polarity. Like if you want to be attracted to each other, you can't just be hanging out with each other in sweatpants in the same room, you know, 24 hours a day. Like you, you rub the polarity off and you're like, well, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to have sex with you right now. Uh, we've kind of been <laughs> together for five straight days. What I want to do is go for a run naked in the woods. Yeah. You got to go do that stuff in order to stay sane. How does the future look for men? Do you think in men's work and men's health and since you started this journey, because you've been in it for quite a while. I'm a, an optimist, Kali. I truly am. And I've just seen like five years ago when I really started this, people told me I was crazy. People said like, this will never work. Guys won't do the work. Guys aren't interested in this. Guys don't spend money on anything other than like cars, women, and how to make more money or abs, right? <laughs> And so I now believe it because I see how many guys reach out to me. It's gone up and up and up. And how many guys are, are having the honest conversations of saying, like, hey, I'm struggling. And you know who else is struggling? The 10 guys I hang out with. And you know who else is actually coming on board to this? Is, is I said, like, we have this cultural paradigm swing of a pendulum where women were saying like they were very angry at men. We had Me Too right here in the U.S., and and it was I am a huge proponent of it. I'm so glad it happened. It was really necessary, and yet the the tale the tale of that was wow. There's a lot of anger towards men, and then then what happened is a lot of women said, but wait a minute, I love men. I'm raising a son. I love my boyfriend. I love my brother. I love my dad. Uh, I can't just, we're not going to solve this problem by being angry at men. So women are coming in in a whole different manner as well. So to me, I have huge optimism about the future because it feels like, do you know anything about CrossFit? No, not that much actually. More than I just okay. see CrossFit dudes as annoying, bulky, screaming dudes at the gym. That's my view of it. Gotcha. <laughs> yep. And when it was early, people thought it was insane but it shifted fitness forever. It made it so that like just doing bicep curls, people realize like that's not how you get healthy. And women just doing like aerobics classes, that's not how you get healthy. So it changed the culture of exercise forever. Now you have all of these offshoot gyms that aren't doing CrossFit, but like women are lifting weights, men are going for more runs. It, like it changed the culture. So I view this work as slowly it's going to start to just, it is changing the culture where it may not be that there's an uncivilized group in every city and every country in the world, which is what I want, but there will be a men's group. It will be a thing where it's required for police officers to be in a men's group. It'll be required for firefighters to be in a men's group. It'll be required for military guys for the first year they get home from war that they have to be in a, a men's group. Like that's the kind of cultural shift. And so I fully believe that uh, it will change because it needs to. Yeah, because what's really does. hard, like I'm 45 years old. And I work with a lot of guys who are 30 and up, but what's really challenging is for guys who are under 20, who yeah. are caught in the middle of this, you know, the gender identity kind of political fuckery that's saying like, you're not anything, you're not a man or a woman, like none of this really matters. 
And yet so many of those guys, their parents reach out to me or they reach out to me and they say, like, my son is lost mm-hmm. because he, he's, he's, he doesn't have a positive male role model. And so what I feel like we're doing is creating thousands and thousands and hopefully millions of positive male role models so that guys like you and I five years ago would be like, oh, I know five guys who go to men's work, who go to therapy, who are yeah. in good shape, who have a purpose, who are really great boyfriends and great husbands and great fathers. And, and, and they're open to talking about what it's like to be a man. And I think that's really, that's what I have optimism about is just the topic. Like, oh, yeah. this topic now exists. Being a man is a whole topic. And we need to be talking about it. So I'm an optimist. I think it's very important just that we start as early as possible, actually. I used to be uh, a teacher. I was t- a teacher for t- two years. Uh, I stepped in wow. um, teaching, a f- what do you call it, a fourth grade. They're around, uh, what is, are they then? Like 12-year-olds, 12-year-olds. 12 um, I think that's and younger. Is it? Seventh like grade for us is, seven, yeah, you're right, 10 10, 11, something like that. Yeah. yeah and yeah. they uh, got caught, uh, not by me, but by another teacher watching porn on their uh, mobile mm-hmm. in the locker room. Mm-hmm. And the teacher was like, okay, we need to talk about this. Um, right. So one, uh, on, a female teacher took the girls of the class. They didn't, they didn't watch porn, but they should have a talk about it that they felt at least. Uh, yeah. And I was responsible taking the guys. So me, yeah. as I was 22 at a time, I think, just got stepped into a room, uh, dropped into a room basically with, yeah. I think there were 14 or 15 at least guys at around 10 or uh, 10 or 11. I was like, they are never going to share anything about like sexuality, porn, anything about that. We sat down uh, I just asked like, do, do you know why, why we're here? What we're going to talk about? Yeah, we watched porn in the locker room. I was like, yeah, okay, let's talk about it. And you have to think about there was like the cool guys, there was the the bullied guys and the in-between guys. So there's a whole spectrum. And all of them shared shared more intimate stuff about their lives than I've ever shared with another man or person in my entire life. Mm. They were like, Mm. yeah, when I watched this, I felt that. And that meant Mm. uh, I felt excited. And then I masturbated to this. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Are these kids more <laughs> adult than I am because they can actually yeah. talk about it? And that was yeah. such an eye-opener to me. You know, it's so important when you're that old to be cool as well and sit yeah. as the bullied kid in front of the cool kids and talk about your masturbation. That's right. that's balls from a guy like that, I think. Sure. And I think, I didn't think we would get something out of it before the talk, but afterwards yeah. I was like, we should do this weekly. This is yep. the, one of the best things they've ever talked about. And for me personally as well. Yeah. Yeah, man. When I, I used to lead workshops with a guy named Connor Beaton who runs Man Talks. Really, really great guy. And on the last day, we'd be out in Vancouver or out in uh, British Columbia, outside of Vancouver. And we'd take the guys on like a, a five-mile hike, which is probably, I don't know, like 2.2 2. 2 kilometers. I don't, I don't remember how to translate. Uh, <laughs> I'm an American. And at the time, here's what we just we'd give them a partner and we'd say, Here is all guys say, Here's your conversation for the walk up. I want you to talk about your first sexual experience, your worst sexual experience, and just what you're curious about in that, in that domain. Right. And we'd go on like a 90 minute, two hour hike and we'd get to the top and ask the guys, How was this conversation? And 
nine out of 10 of them, if not 10 out of 10 of them would say, this is the most honest conversation I've had about sex with a, with anybody in my entire life. Like you're a father of five. You have two kids. You have, you know, you're, you've been married three times. You've been in a relationship for 10 years. All of these themes. I was like, why aren't we talking about this? This is really important. And how many of them said afterwards, it just felt so good to know that the challenges I have are not unique. The fears I have are not unique. The shame I may have, it's not unique. And just that conversation, Kali, like how healing that was for a guy to go, oh, you have the same thing I do, or oh, you went through the same thing I did. And, and this is why it's frustrating to me is that this could happen all the time. We could normalize being human for men, right? And be like, oh, okay, cool. You're, you're in, in, in high school, you know, you, you, you ejaculated prematurely. And so now you've had, you've, you've been scared to be in a relationship since that day forward. Holy shit. What if in high school you went like, all right, guys, everybody raise your hand. If this has happened to you and 500 of hands went up, you'd be like, (laughs) Oh, okay, cool. Now I can go be in a relationship. I can experience love. I can experience connection because I don't have to have this fear. And so it's, just just opening the door to conversation without judgment is so, so important. Because, you know, I'll steal this line from Connor. He's the one who came up with it. He said, the first rule of man club is we don't talk about man club. <laughs> right. And so I've had guys yeah. in workshops where I'd say, okay, this is how I used to always start workshops. It's a little bit of a mind fuck for the guys. They'd be like, okay, raise your hand if you've ever had an issue with alcohol. And that's a pretty innocuous one, right? And so, yeah. like, you know, guys would look around and then, like, eventually, like, every hand would go up. They'd be like, okay, raise your hand if you've ever had an issue with drugs or had, a, like, a bad experience with drugs. And I was, like, a little more hesitant. And then, like, yeah, 99% of the hands go up. I'm like, okay, now I'm going to fuck with you guys a little bit. <laughs> raise your hand if you think you've ever had an issue with sex or porn. And now it's, like, People are oh looking down, God. looking around yeah. and like, you know, three hands go up and then five hand goes up and then every hand goes up. And I say, okay, here's the million dollar question. How many of you thought you were going to be the only guy to raise your hand to any one of these questions? And every hand shoots up immediately. Yeah. And we go, okay, look around the room. You're not alone. You're not special. You're not unique. You are literally common. Your problems are common. And I'm not trying to downplay them. I'm trying to say like, they're normal. It's okay. Talk about them, share them, be open. Like, do you think that the guy sitting across from you who said like, yeah, you know, a couple of times I've gotten too drunk. Do you like, oh, wow, you're just a bad person. No, <laughs> you're like, dude, I totally relate to you. I've, I've done yeah, it human. a thousand times myself. Yeah, it's human. So I think that's like when you said with the 10 year olds, like we need, there's a generation that didn't get that. Like we were all brought up in the, like, you don't talk about it phase yeah. of being a man. And now we can go through the statistics of drug addiction, alcohol addiction, depression, anxiety, suicide, domestic violence, prison, whatever we want to say. And men lead all of them. We're at the top of every one of those categories. And so the, the, like, the outcome of living this way 
isn't working. It's like we we need to if we were a company, we'd be like, all right, the male side, you guys are bankrupt. <laughs> we, <laughs> we we need to change up the marketing, we need to change up the messaging, we need to change up we need to change up everything. So but we don't look at it that way. We just quietly like, wow, it's weird. I don't know why. I don't get why yeah. guys are drinking. But right. it's really brave of those guys to actually raise their hands. The first guys to raise their hands. Yeah. That's the really brave ones. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they give, what do they give to everybody else? Permission, yeah. right? They give them permission. So it's, it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. This is why I love working with men because when you, when you watch them go, okay, I get it. I'm not alone. That yeah. to me is like, it's the best feeling in the world because I know the spider of spider web effect of, of that man's permission right there. It will affect his son. It will affect his employee. It will affect his neighbor. It will affect everybody. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of funny when Christina sees me coming back from, I usually take walks with one of my friends, like uh, this on a distance, where you just uh, call each other and we do that. I don't know, two or three times a week. And we'd easily talk two hours each time. Uh, we can talk about everything from economics to sex, to alcohol, food, whatever. Um, and it's so fun. Every time I'm coming back, almost Christina's like, you, so, you look so, you know, happy, relieved, enlightened. You never look like in that way when we talk. It was like, no, it's a different mm -hmm. kind of conversation. I, I have really deep and good right. talks with Christina too, of course. Of course. Uh, it, it, there's on the same level, but on totally different spectrums because I can't yeah. compare the conversation I have with my friend Stefan uh, compared to Christina mm -hmm. because that's, he yeah. gets me in a way that Christina, Christina doesn't. But of course, I involve right. her in the conversation afterwards. Like, yeah, we talked about of this. Course. And, you know, when I was mad yesterday, I figured out, thanks to Stefan, that it was because of this thing. She was like, ah, mm -hmm. okay. So bring her into the conversation, but actually not having her on the call. Kelly, you may not know it, but that's high level work. What we actually recommend to men. There are certain things you need to take to men before you take them to your woman. Yeah. Your, your woman is not your therapist. She's not meant to be your therapist. Yet your brothers can hold that information for you. They can take what you've said. They can mirror it back to you. They can share with you or just hold you in it. And then you take it to your woman. And that's just a much more skillful way to exist in relationship. Yet it's not popular in Western culture. It's like, oh, you have secrets. So you can only talk about certain <laughs> things with the guys. We have, to, we have to work through that idea and get to the other side, which says, I need to take this here first. It benefits the relationship if I do this. It harms the relationship if I do the opposite. And if we come back to the word willingness, that's what we as a culture and, our, and people in relationship have to say, like, hey, I want to have a great relationship with my partner. I'm not in this to have a shitty relationship. So I need her to also have girlfriends that she goes and confides things with and shares things with that I will never understand yeah. ever because I'm, I'm not a woman and I need to have men that I go and talk to talk about things and then come home. And you know what? You, you, you make such a great point. And I'll, I'll, I'll echo this by saying I've, I've seen, I've talked to a lot of women who also say my man is far more attractive when he comes back from like a, a, a night with the guys that's not around drinking. It's not around fucking, you know, it's like an actual intentional night that yeah. he feels lighter. He feels more open and I feel more attracted to him. 
And that I understand. So that's how we, we almost have to sell this idea to women. I'm like, you want to, you want an attractive man? Let him go hang out with some dudes. I'm not talking about strip clubs. I'm not talking about the bullshit. I'm talking about them actually connecting on a deep, intimate level. Yeah. I usually take like sauna nights with my friends, my old, old friends um, mm. a few times a year. And that's one of the best conversations I have easily on top of the year. Like, because there are no cell phones. There is no distraction. It's just us and a lot of heat and then a lake nearby. And mm. that's it. So powerful. Good for you. What do you have coming up next besides the future books and uh, the workshop in October? Mm. I have a, uh, a leadership course that I teach with my number two guy, Dave Boyd. And so it's a men's leadership course. And this is something I'm doing for the first time, Kale. I'm doing a, uh, a coaching certification afterwards. Mm. I have so many guys say, like I had so many guys approach me, men for coaching. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do it. I'm too, too busy. Or I just made up like a really, really ridiculous expensive <laughs> number. And yeah. some people paid it, but I was, I was like, <laughs> I need to have guys who are willing to do teach my method or share that method of coaching. So I've got that coming out, uh, a couple workshops, and I'm super excited just to be back with real humans. I'm grateful for Zoom, and <laughs> there's just nothing like getting to put your arm around somebody or hug somebody. Yeah. Uh, so really, that and watching this, you know, watching this expand. I was on a year long book promotion tour when COVID hit. So I was supposed to be in, uh, I was going to be in Edinburgh. I was going to be in, in London. I was going to be in Spain. I was going to be like traveling around and spreading the message of uncivilized. And I feel like Europe's close, but now I can get back out on the road and just start talking yeah. with guys. Like I dropped into a group maybe a month ago. It was eight guys in North Carolina I just showed up and talked for like an hour and now they are just out like spreading the word oh, as cool. fast as they can, right? So so that's what I'm really excited about. Just watching this thing grow, but also getting to shake people's hands and hug them because I yeah. love that shit. Yeah, that's a total different experience than sitting like, I'm, again, it's nice with Zoom so we can talk right now, but 100%. actually hugging and like being close to people, touching them is a totally different thing. Totally different thing. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm that way. I, I miss humans, you know, it's, yeah. it's like people and hearing their stories. So people that want to reach out to you, where do you hang out online? Mostly on Instagram. And I'm at Traver Bohm, T-R-A-V-E-R-B-O-E-H-M. And if you're interested in any of my programs, any of my courses or joining the Uncivilized Nation, the men's organization, you can go to manuncivilized.com. And that's the only place right now as well to get my book and the hard copy. It's manuncivilized.com forward slash the book. Although for the two-year anniversary coming up in August, I'm trying to get it on Amazon so that shipping can be easier to Europe and places like that. But yeah, those are the two places I hang out most. I have a podcast and you have a, Kyle has been a guest, the Uncivilized Podcast. Yeah. You can find on Spotify and Apple and the places you find podcasts. But I'm also open. I, anybody who messages me, as long as you're not an a-hole, uh, I will message <laughs> you back on Instagram. But I'd say 99.999% of the time, people are very sweet and very open. And uh, I love talking to people. I just love humans, Kale. So yeah, hit me up on Instagram. And I will leave links to all of that you said uh, in the show notes to an episode so people can just Thank click. you. Cool. Thank, thank you. you so much for coming on. I've look, been looking forward to this talk for My a long pleasure. time. So thank you. 
Yeah, my pleasure, man. It's it's been a while. I, I just love that this exists and that uh, after having you on that you're willing to have me on. So I really appreciate the space. I love what you're doing. I, I know I started as a little bit of a fanboy first where I watched <laughs> a couple of your YouTube videos and was like, this guy's fucking awesome. I have to find him. I have to talk to him. So yeah, we did. thank you for all the inspiration that you've also given me as well. Thank you for that. All right, man. Take care. Have a great cool. rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Cheers. Bye-bye. Ooh, wow, what an episode. I hope you liked it as much as I did. Maybe this is your first time hearing my voice and listening to my podcast. If that's the case, I just want to tell you that I also have a YouTube channel that you can check out. And we are very, very close on hitting the 100,000 subscriber mark. So if you want to head over there and check out more of my stuff, you're more than welcome. And I've left a link in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening and we'll talk in the next episode. Bye.